0: hello welcome to our podcast Uh, we're going to be discussing chapter 10 called grandma hanny from ryan grimm's book we've got people
1: grandma hanny is mostly about elizabeth warren and it gives us some background on her first elizabeth warren was born in 1949 but her childhood was still shrouded by the great depression and the toll it had taken on her family in oklahoma She was raised by her parents alongside three older brothers, and she was able to spend lots of time with her grandmother, Hanny Crawford-Reed, who would tell her stories about the Depression and how FDR restored the people's trust by making it safe to put their money in banks again. Her current politics were shaped by these stories from Grandma Hanny, joining her mother while she volunteered as a pool worker on Election Day and by her family's Native American roots. Well, what they thought were there. Uh, I, well, I, the way the book describes it, she has like a – her grandmother's grandmother was a Cherokee Native American. But it gets complicated because just because you have a Native American in your past doesn't mean you can necessarily say you have Native American in you. Right, right. Um, like I have like a 6th great grandmother who was Cherokee. But if you do my – well, uh, it's not uh, something
0: I can really claim, though. Elizabeth Warren um, did a DNA test, remember, mm-hmm. and which did not really prove it out. So, no. well. so it was. It would be very distant. Yes,
1: like, um, like it then. doesn't show up in my DNA test either because okay. I did do my ancestry right, DNA so far back. So far back, and from what I like, my family, we never really. It doesn't appear that anything really got passed down, anyways, because mm-hmm. she was, a, she came into the family and she left her tribe behind. She didn't incorporate it into the family values. Her experiences, Elizabeth Warren's, were also influenced by her father's heart attack that caused him to be unable to to work and almost resulted in the loss of their family home. Luckily, her mother was able to go to their local Sears and support their family of three. Her brothers had already left the nest on a minimum wage job. Imagine that. Right. Something (laughs) that just doesn't happen anymore. After high school, Warren won a debate scholarship and left Oklahoma for college. At 19, she married her high school sweetheart, and by 21, she was the mother of daughter Amelia. When Amelia was two years old, Warren went to law school at Rutgers University. Although Grimm didn't mention it in the book, Warren frequently noted her Aunt B during her 2020 presidential campaign as being a core reason she was able to pursue her education and exactly why this country needs a better plan for childcare. Unlike her colleague, Bernie Sanders, Warren did not begin a career in politics by reading marks or joining demonstrations in her younger years. For much of her life, she was an infrequent voter, and despite her impressive education, an uninformed voter as well. She spent many decades as a registered Republican, contrary to her current progressive ideology. It wasn't until she was teaching at the University of Houston Law Center in 1981, where she would begin research that would change the way she looked at politics and economics. Interesting what a little information can do for you. Right? Just a little bit of learning. When Warren began her research on bankruptcy with Jay Westbrook and Terry Sullivan, she believed in the free market orthodoxy and the right-wing law school ideology of law and economics. She was the skeptic on the team who questioned how her family was able to pull their belt tighter to get by and why other families simply didn't do the same. As she dug into the stories of people who had filed for bankruptcy, she found that most of the families were just as hardworking as the family she had grown up with, but had the bad luck of being hit by job losses, medical conditions, divorce, deaths in the family. She started to examine these families who chose to stay in debt for the remainder of their lives in a new light. Yep. One bad experience away. Well, most I read an article one time where like 60% of American families are just one bad day away from having everything taken. All right medical bills often do that. Yeah. Yes. The research team found results that indicated many bankruptcies are caused by people who suffer medical emergencies, but yeah. there's all, there was also another less discussed result. Many people were falling into bankruptcy by purchasing homes in neighborhoods they couldn't afford because they wanted their children to attend a better school district. Uh, I understand that. Right. Oh, let's just have good schools for everybody. Right. If all public schools were equal, we wouldn't have all these people trying to get homes in areas they really just can't afford. It would stabilize
0: home prices Mm -hmm. too a lot more. It would make that market less prone to like wild, you know, like some houses in a different neighborhood are like twice as
1: much as the neighboring. Right. It's like here in Beaver County, PA. All right. You can drive less than a mile away and find houses that are like way different. Way different. Right. They also examined the question of why bankruptcies were becoming more frequent than in previous generations. They found that while incomes had remained stagnant, core expenses had skyrocketed, and the credit card companies, payday lenders, and subprime mortgage outfits were more than willing to exploit the difficulties families faced just trying to make ends meet. Vultures. Mm -hmm. This realization was the beginning of Warren becoming a Democrat, although she wouldn't make the official switch until the mid-90s. By 1995, Warren was a professor at Harvard and a registered Democrat when she was appointed to the National Bankruptcy Review Commission. While working for the commission, she came into contact with many politicians, and that's where she began her path on partisan politics. She met with and clashed with both Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. At the time, Biden was an advocate for the credit card companies, and Warren lobbied Clinton to vote against a bankruptcy bill, which Clinton ended up supporting.
0: Yeah, I often tell people if you want to get someone involved in politics, get them to learn about just one issue.
1: Yeah, just pick one issue that means the most of them. When the 2008 financial crash occurred and Congress bailed out Wall Street that October, a provision within the bailout required a commission to audit where the bailout money went. Predictably, this commission was forgotten about until a Treasury Department inspector general spoke to the Washington Post and described the bailout as a mess and that nobody was watching where the money was really going. Sounds familiar.
0: Uh
1: (laughs) Reed and Pelosi were scrambling for a solution, and Reed thought of the Harvard professor willing to fight over bankruptcy. When Reed called Warren that mid-November and asked her to chair the commission that would oversee the bailout funds, she accepted immediately, despite not really knowing what was going to be expected of her.
0: This book has made me like Harry Reid a lot
1: better. Yeah, I didn't realize how many good things he did behind the scenes that we didn't necessarily always get to know about. Essentially, the commission that she was put in charge of had no real power, but Warren showed that she was very good at wielding the little bit of power she could make from nothing. She went viral for the verbal thrashing she handed down to Treasury Secretary Tim Geithner.
0: That's what we need to do. We need to take every little ounce of power we have.
1: Yes. And just And hit
0: Manchin over the head with it.
1: Oh yes. <laughs> Manchin and cinema. Right. At least Manchin kinda has the excuse that he's from West Virginia and perceives it as being right. very Republican, but like Arizona? Lady, you're from Arizona. You can absolutely be progressive. Right. They're
0: progressives after her in Arizona. Although yeah. they do have a lot of those retired Republicans out there too that yeah. that went out there for the Climate and you know, mm-hmm. so they do have some pretty rabid. That wasn't that that crazy sheriff from Arizona that was putting. I thought he in... was from New Mexico. Mm, I think it was Arizona. I don't know. I could be wrong, though. David something. He was putting people in dog pens outside. Yeah,
1: yeah he he also that sheriff orchestrated a lot of like the tent cities where they started putting immigrants. Right. Yeah. I digress. (laughs) Her chairmanship also put her into closer contact with members of Congress who she was able to discuss her idea for an agency dedicated to regulating consumer financial products with. When Warren met with Barney Frank, the House Financial Services Committee Chairman, she used her story about Grandma Haney entrusting the banks to convince him that the regulations needed to start with banks in the aftermath of the 2008 crash. Frank on the other hand wanted he had planned to start on non-bank financial institutions. But Warren's argument was that they needed to start making reforms in ways that people would be able to see and understand. She's really good at that. She is I think she's very good at talking to people like she's on our level. She's right. on just explaining
0: yeah like putting things in plain language.
1: Yes, instead of all the confusing language they try to put financial aspect issues into. Saving homes would be instrumental in fixing the trust between the public, the government, and the banks. What's more important than people being able to stay in their homes?
0: Right. I mean, this whole culture, our whole social culture in this country has been
1: based on people owning homes. It's like it's the American dream. You're supposed to always be able to have a home. Barney Frank gave in and agreed. They would start the consumer agency.
0: Isn't it crazy that they had to fight so hard? To yeah. get something to regulate something that not only should have been regulated all along and actually used to be regulated, mm-hmm. but that so, like, collapsed right in front of our eyes. Right. And then I, they had to, like, put yeah. up this
1: big struggle just to regulate it. At this moment in time, in 2008 or so, like, nobody should have been thinking about anything else. People were just being kicked out of their homes left and right. Right. The whole market had crashed. Right, right. I, it, Globally, everything was crashing down. Right.
0: Yeah, it just goes to show how much power the financial interests have gained. Yes. That they can try they can they can almost shut this stuff down, which we will see in the next chapter.
1: Yes, the next chapter really picks up right where this left off because the fight for the consumer agency is not over. Um, this was all Warren did at this point was win over the House Financial Services Committee chairman, just right. the one guy.
0: Wait till you hear about how hard it was for them to actually get the commission.
1: Yeah. And then to give it teeth <coughs> and then mm-hmm. to get somebody to run it. Right. Oh. Right. Right. Our next podcast will also be very interesting. And I hope everybody listens to that one too. Right.
0: For Okay. So yeah. So we're going to discuss this chapter and the next one. So listen to both of them. Yes. We
1: for Wednesday.
0: Hello. Welcome to our podcast. Um, everything you need to know, but didn't want to read. Yep. We are reporting on Ryan Grimm's book, We've Got People, and we are doing chapter
1: 12, Warren versus Wall Street, which this picks up pretty much directly after our last one of chapter 10 that was all about Elizabeth Warren and her grandma Hanny. In late 2009, the Wall Street reform bill that would come to be known as the Dodds-Frank bill was being drugged through Congress by Elizabeth Warren's consumer agency. That October, the bill was moving through the House Financial Services Committee consisting of 42 Democrats and 29 Republicans. They were faced with a very straightforward question. Should the lending practices of auto dealers be regulated by the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau? When an auto dealer sells a car, they almost always sell an auto loan with that car. And these loans have been known to be predatory and disproportionately predatory to the black and brown communities. So there's also a layer of racism involved with all of this. Seems like a small thing, but all the problems are made out of, most of the problems are
0: made out of all these little tiny pieces.
1: Yes, they all come together to make a big (laughs) problem. The auto dealer is able to pocket excessive amounts of commission money while helping to lock vulnerable people into loans they cannot afford on cars that were most likely overpriced. Passing reform on this committee, the House Financial Services Committee, is difficult because of the makeup of the committee and the way it works. It's the second largest committee with a very interesting hierarchy. I believe the largest committee only has like three more members as well. Like right. it's It's pretty much almost the same size.
0: Yeah, so these committees are the way that the Senate gets business done. Mm -hmm. It's the way bills have to pass through these committees before they come to the floor to be voted on. It's pretty important. Yeah. Pretty important work as far as what's going to come out of the Senate and affect us in our lives.
1: Right. So at the top of the tiered rows of committee members sit the more senior members of the committee and the chairman himself. These senior members are usually reliable voters because they've held their positions for so long they don't have to worry about being voted out in the next election but as you go down through the tiers you find more vulnerable members of congress
0: right they haven't been there as long
1: right it's a strategy that was embraced by democrat leadership they would allow freshmen and sophomore congress members to sit on the committee which allowed them to pander to the industries within their districts by protecting them from reform bills right and this particular committee that worked very well. Yes. Or badly depending on depending on how you look <laughs> at it I suppose. <laughs> Republican John Campbell, a former sob dealer from California, was instrumental in destroying the regulations the bill tried to impose on auto dealers. The Campbell amendment was written to keep the auto dealers safe from the consumer protection bureau. While the top Democrats reject, rejected this amendment, when the voting started to reach the lower levels, vulnerable Democrats defected and approved the amendment, which then had the domino effect of this more senior Democrats would hurry up and be like, "Oh wait, wait, wait! I right. changed my mind. I changed right. my mind."
0: And so, so the, the the more junior members, the weaker members, they needed the money from both the banking industry, Mm -hmm. and from the local car dealers Mm -hmm. who are often
1: very popular, like, you know, big wheels in their districts. So these vulnerable Democrats on the lower levels were from red-leaning swing districts, and they used their positions to keep money flowing into their own campaign coffers. The committee was literally nicknamed the Money Committee because the whole point of having these swing district Dems sit on it was that they could get more money for their campaigns they'd pander to their district-specific industries. In this case, we're speaking of there was the auto dealers, and they would just kill the reform that came through. The Campbell Amendment was able to pass with a 47 to 21 margin, despite the Democrats holding a 13-person majority. As younger members voted in favor, the senior ones would just change and also support the amendment because they didn't want to be seen as obstructing I, I think those this, industries.
0: Yeah, I think this is a really good example of how money within the p- political system, within the electoral system, really weakens the Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. you can see how you know, to pass a bill like this, although it may be unpopular with a few people in your district who are giving money, there are a lot more people in your district for whom this would help. Right. And so it makes the it just like is like r- removes Democratic legislators from populism. Mm mm-hmm.
1: The whole strategy is just terrible. It places these unreliable Democrats on the committee to help their fundraising efforts, because as we've seen in previous chapters, that was kind of what the leadership decided was most important. Was right. fundraising over actual change, right. and it made it Im- almost impossible to keep a democratic consensus. Right, it put them constantly on the defensive. Right, never could they take the offensive on any. Yep, and the auto dealers weren't the only industry who would benefit from this practice. Specifically, like John Deere, dairy farmers, and other back home district industries were able to wield excessive power, and in- through these vulnerable Democrats. They didn't come with the same kind of baggage as wall street bankers and they were typically well known in their districts right think of all the children's sports teams that are sponsored by your local auto dealership to the voters these companies are doing the important work by giving back to the community and it makes it easy to just ignore the predatory loans they hand out to the same community at the same time right
0: and it also makes makes it really Difficult to tell the difference between Democrats and Republicans yeah because there are a lot of people I know that like if you think the world is a corrupt place Where money matters more than anything then why would you not vote just go ahead and vote for a real Republican? Right instead of a Democrat who's like seems Mm wishy-washy Saying one thing doing another thing Mm -hmm. like
1: it just really weakens the Weakens our power as Democrats, right? Committee Chairman Barney Frank was quoted as saying, what is happening now is the pro-regulation forces are being outgrassrooted by the antis. Yeah, they're... This isn't necessarily always a problem of campaign contributions alone either. In a way, this is democracy in work. The men and women who run the credit unions, the auto dealerships, the realtors, the John Deere guys, they're all a part of the Congress member's constituency, so they should have a say. You know they should be able to right. have their representative listen to them, right? But fair, fair, right? But in a fair <laughs> manner. Like just because you live in the district doesn't mean your representative should let you get away with doing whatever you want, right? New Democrat representatives and frontliners like Melissa Bean from Illinois and Jim Himes from the from Connecticut were ringleaders in this effort to stop regulations. Both members were favorites of Rahm Emanuel, and the D Triple C had invested millions in Bean's election efforts. Although Bean was a reliable vote for issues like health care, cap and trade, and even some financial reform, just not the reform that was really needed. While being only a third-term member, Bean was able to wield her position to do the handiwork of Wall Street. She was well-versed in financial issues and she leveraged her power on the committee to stop the progressives from allowing states to pass tougher reform laws.
0: You know, this also made me think that ideologically and in terms of messaging and legislation that w- I think we need to think about how to separate these grassroots interests mm-hmm. from Wall Street, from this kind of stuff she's doing for Wall Street. Wall Street's interest and the car dealer's interest are actually pretty different. If right. You think about how Wall Street has, like, you know, how big corporations and chain stores and big box stores have driven small businesses our business right. it seems like we could come up with economic policy and banking policy that would support small business.
1: Right. Even like the auto dealers shouldn't be giving us bad auto loans, but that's still not the that's not the extent to what Wall Street does, where they will literally crash the entire system. Right. Ultimately, Bean's efforts were because she was in a red-leaning district and didn't feel she could risk being progressive on financial reform, despite the fact that she was progressive in other areas. But it shouldn't be left out. As soon as she left the House of Representatives, she went on to work for J.P. Morgan Chase. Right, so. right.
0: We can always get what's free. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the resources, it's a lot harder to to get
1: that. Right. Right. In a similar vein, Representative Jim Himes was a former banker who argued that the industry was fine and it didn't need any tighter regulation either because he was a part of it. He knew.
0: And don't forget, this is while everything was crashing.
1: Yeah, around our- this is all as the crash is happening. <laughs> These new Dem members were handpicked to protect the banks and other financial services from any form of regulation. The House was so tilted toward Wall Street that the reform was actually able to be stronger after it left the committee, and even stronger once it left the House altogether. This was in spite of the fact that the Senate still required a 60-member vote, which meant they needed a few of the Republicans and all of the red state Democrats. Warren organized labor, the blogosphere, and the Progressive Change Campaign Committee deserve the credit for strengthening the bill. When the Progressive Change Campaign Committee worked to get progressive Bill Halter to primary Blanche Lincoln in Arkansas, Blanche actually ended up turning around and she turned her back on what was expected to be a very bank-friendly bill. And she wrote one that had one of the most aggressive approaches against big banks and their derivatives trading operations, which derivative trading is important because that is what allows the big banks to take really risky choices well gambling with other people's money and they weren't always allowed to do that either right that was like a a reagan a, a reagan era anti-regulation policy that got put in place so it's not like that was a whole new idea yeah banks used to have to be banks right instead of gamblers the language in her bill was also able to survive the Senate because Chuck Schumer didn't go out of his way to recruit conservative Senate candidates in the support of a few senators who weren't afraid to shy away from Wall Street reform at all, despite coming from red districts. Like um, right. Amy Klobuchar is a real good example. Al Franken. Right. They're right. both from like the Midwest. Right. So they're not in super strong Democrat states, but they still went against Wall Street. Because
0: – Things were collapsing around us. I was right. I was just thinking also that in terms of like car dealerships, all of the local businesses suffered because of what Wall Street did too. Because right. you said like they're willing to crash everything, mm-hmm. and they did crash everything. And a lot of businesses had closed during that crash. Yeah. Like nobody was buying cars then.
1: No, so you couldn't afford a, ha- a car if you were st- so worried about your house being taken out from underneath you. So you'd think they would have wanted all this reform. Right, but, but they've been captured. Right.
0: That's why the ideological struggle against Wall Street is so important. We need to like
1: put a wedge in there. Right, we need to separate it from things like auto dealers and stuff like that. Right, small restaurant owners.
0: <clears throat> yeah, all the people that the Chamber of Commerce courts. Right, and right. They need to separate it. Wall Street's, Wall Street's message through to them.
1: Mm-hmm. During all of this time, Warren kept pushing for her CFPB to be run by a director instead of a commission with strong independence from Congress. That was very important. Right. She used the progressive media to help move the idea along and to strengthen the Dodd-Frank bill. Every time there was a threat to weaken the CFPB, even if it was just a rumor, she would put it out to the blogs and calls would flood the representative offices and keep the pressure on them to move forward with real reform.
0: I thought that was really interesting, too, how... The the older, but like the the boomer politicians that did the most for us are the ones that saw the importance of what younger people were doing in the with their blogging. Right, and just the, like
1: how Harry Reid embraced them back, and
0: right. you know the day. Right, the, they they were able to see the beginning of social media, and they were talking to young people enough that they, they knew it was
1: going to be a thing, a right. very important big thing. Right, Graham wrote about a time when he would see Chris Dodd, who was the chairman for the banking committee. And Dodd would just become so so exasperated and roll his eyes every time he had to see him in the halls of Congress because he knew Grimm was coming there to report for the Huffington Post to keep the uh, progressive media moving and keeping the pressure on them.
0: You know, I thought it was really interesting when um, Elizabeth Warren said one point where she would rather have... okay. Here's what she said. She said about the committee. My first choice is a strong consumer agency, she said. My second choice is no agency at all and plenty of blood and teeth left on the floor. Yes. I think that, I don't think that's always the tactic to use, but I think that it's important to keep that tactic in our toolbox. Yeah. And that we at times have to be willing to go there
1: the right wing has always been willing to use that kind of tactic. We'll just kill everything. If you don't give us what we want, right. right. It's time to use it against them. Right. Right. When Senator Scott Brown won a special election in Massachusetts in January of 2010 and knocked the Democrats down to only 59 senators, the white house seemed to finally be taking the message from the people. They weren't impressed with what Democrats had done thus far. Although the white house had always publicly supported the CFPB, the time had come for them to support it politically. The White House also at that time committed themselves to the Volcker Rule, which barred banks from gambling with government-insured money. A reasonable rule to everybody except the big banks in Wall Street, who would prefer to do anything they want to anybody at any time with whatever money they felt like using. And get bailed out. Yeah, and get bailed out in the end. they fuck (laughs) up. Right. (laughs) When the bill was moving to completion, Harry Reid took a chance by putting the bill on the floor. He knew he didn't have 60 votes, but he also knew that the Republicans who were going to vote down this Wall Street reform bill would look bad for blocking it. Right. Especially in the midst of the 2008 financial crash. Right. Sometimes you got to just show people for who they are. Right. It's a tactic. It is a tactic. He's used it before, too, um, with LGBTQ. Right, right. Rights. Moving those forward. Cloture vote after cloture vote failed, and Reid wanted to pull the bill and give up, but he was encouraged by Chris Dodd and a few others to keep up the pressure. They were sure they could win. And sure enough, the Senate passed the bill on May 20th, 2010, and it was signed into law by President Obama on July 21st, 2010.
0: Here we are. We get a victory again.
1: Yay, another victory. Yeah. (laughs) I I like being able to do these podcasts when we can, like, have a victory at the end, where there's at least, like, something sort of good that happened. Right. Right.
0: I thought it was interesting, too, that there was actually a battle within the White House
1: between
0: two of, I forget which the two, two of Obama's closest advisors and then Rahm and his faction actually fought it out a bit. Yeah. So, you know, we're often told, like, not to fight, you know, like, to just, like, go along and promote unity, but even within the White House— they weren't able to have unity the, at this yeah, moment. There are struggles over policy. We're supposed to, a strong party has policy struggles. Mm-hmm.
1: And that May is when Warren started talking about how she wanted her agency or she would have no agency at all and blood and teeth. Because uh, the next hurdle was also to who would run the agency. Although Warren would have made a lot of sense. She had made a lot of enemies who didn't want to see her running the agency.
0: So that's when she pulled it out.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I suppose she was too tough for them. She scared them. (laughs) There was also, there was Ben Nelson. He was a Democratic senator from Nebraska, and he actually made it a condition. If he were going to vote yes on the Dodd-Frank bill, reminder, we needed every single Democratic vote plus some Republicans. They had to make it so that she couldn't be in charge of the agency in the end. Emanuel called Harry Reid himself and said, yeah, we don't like her either. But that was only partially true because... David Axelrod and Valerie Jarrett that's were both it, that's internally a, pushing that's, for her. Yeah, that's it. Uh, it was Emmanuel and Tim Geithner who didn't want her, which if you recall from the last, from chapter 10, Tim Geithner is the one that she kept giving verbal thrashings to when she was running the commission. Um, that's, so that's why he didn't like her. Right, right. <laughs> the decision wasn't ultimately up to Harry Reid either. The White House was in charge of these um, appointments. Progressive groups and elected officials championed behind Warren. The public wanted her to be in charge because of the fight, fierce fight she had already led. Obama looked at Bernie Sanders and said, that's the problem with you progressives, as he held up a glass of water. You see, this is half empty. What he meant was that progressives have gotten their agency, and he felt that alone should keep them happy.
0: You know, don't gaslight me on the glass of
1: water. Right. Anything that's half full is also half empty. Right. I hate that analogy. I think it's the most ridiculous, like, it makes no sense. Rules on agency appointments allowed for Obama to place a temporary director whose job it would be to establish the agency, while the Senate deliberated on the permanent director. Because of the very
0: extremely complicated rules of the Senate? Yes,
1: because the Senate, you know, just can't be simple.
0: Nothing can be straightforward in the Senate. Uh,
1: so the progressive groups, they led a pressure campaign. They all got behind her. And before we do it, Warren was named temporary director. Her only condition when she accepted the job was that she had to be given the title of senior advisor to the president so that men specifically like Tim Geithner and Emmanuel couldn't push her around. Right. So she
0: could go to the president instead of wrong Emmanuel. Right. She
1: directly went to Obama. She didn't have to like call Geithner and be like, Hey, I want Obama to know something. Like she could just go around him. So the very next presidential cycle was in 2012 and the Democrats knew they were in for a hard fight. Uh, They were real worried about Romney running against Obama because he was so well, um, he was so well loved at that time. I don't know what happened to that. Right. Well, that's, yeah. Trumpism happened to that.
0: Yeah, it's really hard for me to even imagine any of them being well loved. So I don't (laughs) think I'd be
1: the one to explain any of that. I think (laughs) he comes off as just being a really nice guy, a family man.
0: Is he the guy that strapped his dog's kettle to the roof of his car? Oh my God, I don't know. One of them went on vacation and instead of putting the dog in, I, I it maybe I will we, find out for Wednesday, right, I will Google right, this. Right. Maybe it wasn't him. I'm almost sure it was him. Cause everyone's like, Oh yeah, he's a real nice guy. He can't even put the poor dog in the car. Oh,
1: wow. Okay. That's great.
0: <laughs> that could be Romney. I'm not sure.
1: <laughs> I should have Googled that before the podcast.
0: <laughs> Everybody out there in,
1: in audience land, Google it. <laughs> or come come on Wednesday and we will have an answer for you. So in Massachusetts in 2012, Scott Brown, who had won the special election in 2010, he was up for re-election again. He was also polling extremely well and it was really difficult to find anybody from the old guard Democrats to run against him. He didn't seem to be beatable. A man named Guy Cecil was in charge of recruiting candidates for the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee. And the strategy that year was actually to recruit the most progressive candidates they could find who they still thought were electable. He immediately turned to Elizabeth Warren and urged her to run for the Senate. With the help of Chuck Schumer, who was nicknamed Wall Street Chuck, she was convinced that she would run. So Wall Street Chuck got the the monster for wall street right to right. run for for a senate she's been a good
0: senator she has been a very right. good senator i and was he, I, I was somewhat disappointed that she ran against bernie cuz i i know but nonetheless nonetheless it
1: still turned out okay i still respect her cuz she's really been a great senator yes before she left the white house on her last day warren sat down for like an interview thing with obama it was kind of informal she gave him the same advice that she had given Hillary Clinton when she was planning her run for president. He needed to understand how much anger was out there and surround himself with people who also understood that, instead of Wall Street people and the Reuben wing of the party. She pressed him to take the housing and foreclosures still rippling across the country seriously. He told her he wanted to talk more about housing policy and to leave an email with his secretary, who in turn told Warren, well, email me first and I'll get back to you. Warren sent out Obama and her housing policy ideas, but nothing ever came from it. Right. And now we see where we are with our affordable housing issues. Right. The whole issue just never got solved. Right. We got just left with an unsolved problem. Right.
0: Now, you know, all those houses are
1: foreclosed. Many,
0: many, many of them were bought up by real estate, mm-hmm. investment trusts,
1: Wall Street, Kind money. of like what's going on in um beaver county right now actually uh i recently had been trying to look for a house to purchase me and my husband and one of the things we noticed pretty quickly was that all two or three bedroom homes in like this immediate area here in beaver county where we have the shell cracker plant they're all bought up like the minute they hit the market they're being bought up which i can only assume has to be some sort of real estate investment trust that's the only thing that makes sense for all of them to wow. just be picked up, and there's <clears throat> also within a price range. Right, like they aren't purchasing homes that are over like seventy five, eighty thousand. They're purchasing everything between the smaller, smallish, affordable right, ones. Right, like like forty k, I would say, mm-hmm. all the way up to like seventy, seventy five. So right. pretty much any normal home that a regular average couple would want to purchase for them and their children.
0: I know with the apartments that. Um, a lot of the apartments are really hard to get any maintenance done on them mm-hmm. because the owners are not local anymore. It used to be like, you know, it'd be a local landlord. Right. And you could just call them up and say, like, my, my air conditioner's broken. And they'd be like, okay, i send my guy out on Wednesday. Right. But now you call the manager, the real estate management mm-hmm. agency, and they say, well, I have to try to get a hold of the guy in Florida or wherever. Well, we'll get
1: there eventually. <clears throat> right, and- right.
0: Yep. So... And then rents are so high everywhere, not just in Pittsburgh, but
1: no, that's, that's across the board everywhere. It's just excruciatingly high, right? It leaves a lot of people in the position of like, well, they can go rent because they have to rent because they can't just be homeless. Right. But also you're going to spend so much money between your rent and your utilities and your cost of living that there will be no savings so that one day you yourself can just go purchase a home. It also
0: kills our economy Mm -hmm. because there's, All that money that's getting sucked out used to be at least it went to a local landlord now it's all that money's getting every cent that can be sucked out is getting sucked out of our community Mm -hmm. and still our economy around here has has trouble you know the only thing that's keeping it alive right now is the cracker plant workers and that's very time limited for us
1: yeah we only have maybe a year left of them being here and then there's going to be a significant decrease in the amount of workers up there
0: right so
1: in conclusion, we need some serious housing policy reforms. Right, right. And that that has a lot to do with banking reform. Right. It all comes down to the same thing. Right. So, yep.
0: Um, hopefully we will see you on Wednesday. And uh, we'll talk about this some more. All right. Everybody have a good day. See you Wednesday. Bye.